Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Today, listeners, we're talking apples, specifically about Tasmanian apples and the heyday enjoyed by that industry up until the 1970s when Britain joined the European common market, causing the bottom to fall out of the apple export market. In a divine new novel by Mary Lou Stevens, a Tasmanian born and bred author, we get to relive the highs and lows of being an apple orchardist through the eyes of two lifelong friends, Catherine Turner and Annie Pearson. This was a spectacularly rich, thoroughly researched and highly emotive family drama that offers a poignant insight into the drawn-out demise of this once thriving industry and the incredible courage and resilience of the families affected by this tragedy. An absolute cracker. So I'm thrilled to have the chance to speak with Mary Lou on the podcast today. Hi, Mary Lou, and welcome. Hello, Claudine. How are you going? Really well. I'm so delighted to be speaking with you today. I think it must be getting quite tiresome for my listeners to hear me say week after week that I'm gobsmacked by the quality of debut fiction in this country. Every time I say it, I think it can't get any better or my praise can't be higher. But the reality is I can't think of of superlatives strong enough to convey how I felt about this novel. No, oh, thank you so much. It's uh, it was many years in the making. I will say that right yeah. off the. <laughs> I'm sure, but in any event, perhaps congratulations will <laughs> have to suffice for now, Mary Lou. You're an absolute wonder. It's been out for a little while now, so I wanted to ask you how you're feeling about its reception. Oh, I have been. Absolutely delighted and very grateful. And the reviews have been wonderful, which is always great. And there's the added extra bonus. When I was writing this book, I was really concerned about two things. One, that it starts on the day of the 1967 bushfires in Tasmania, which I remember and uh, a lot of people still do and some people are still traumatised by them. So I knew that I needed to be really careful and respectful about that. Mm. And also the apple orchardists who created the apple aisle just to see it all fall away. Mm. And I really wanted to pay my respect to them. And so when I started getting feedback from women who had grown up on orchards, who had been married to orchardists, who had gone through the 1967 fires with small children, saying, thank you, you've done us proud, you got it right. Ah, that was just amazing. (laughs) I I tear up just thinking about it because I was so worried and so scared about writing this book because of the people who lived through those times and the heartbreaking times they went through. So to get that feedback has just been beautiful yeah I can only imagine and I can hear the emotion in your voice as you're speaking about it and it's it is incredibly touching as I said in my intro you were born in Tasmania and as you've just said you lived through the bushfire which is an event that you document in this novel was that the the impetus for writing this novel or was it something else I wish I knew (laughs) (laughs) knew. this is this is the thing um sometimes inspiration strikes we have no idea where it comes from or why it has chosen us I think Elizabeth Gilbert portrays it really well in Big Magic 
I know that it just comes rushing at us sometimes and we need to to catch it and get it down and I did the opposite. I actually ran away from this idea because I just thought it was too big and too hard and and I didn't know actually how to do it. But it was after I had interviewed Monica McInerney for a live event and we had talked a lot about grief and how it informs her writing. And that very afternoon, this idea just came roaring at me of a book that starts on the day of the 1967 bushfires in Tasmania and um, traces the demise of the apple industry. And I was just like, what is that? Mm. It was unlike anything I'd ever written. So this is my debut novel, but I've written, this is my fourth novel I've written. It's just the first one to get published. So it was unlike anything I'd ever done. And it was like, whoa, who do you think you are? Judy Nunn? (laughs) (laughs) Are you actually capable of writing something like that? So after uh a lot of um research and many 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 drafts it turns out that i am capable of writing that so thank goodness indeed you are more than capable of writing this story (laughs) and it was as i said an absolute cracker of a story now mary lou for listeners who have yet to discover this beautiful book can you tell us more about it yes okay so it does start on february the 7th 1967 and it starts with Catherine, who is a young school teacher at sandy bay infant school which is the school that i went to so what happens at that school are they're actually drawn from my memories and when she takes the kids to the last safe house on Mount Nelson that was actually our house so the scenes there are from my memory as well so the dads and husbands up the hill fighting the fire with wet gunny sacks and garden hoses and no one knowing if there'd be dads or houses or husbands to go home to so that is what I remember and I don't think anyone that's gone through bushfire will ever ever forget it doesn't matter what age you were And um, Catherine actually rushes home to where she grew up in the Huon Valley, which is uh, Wattle Grove, which is a real place just outside of Signet. And she discovers that the family house has burnt down, the orchard is ruined, and her brother is dead. Now, she has always wanted to run the orchard, but it's the 1960s and women did not run orchards. But now she sees it as her her duty and something she really wants to do in memory of her brother as well to restore this orchard. So she vows to do that. Her dad is dead set against it, but she battles through that. And meanwhile, her best friend lives on the neighbouring orchard. So Annie is the wife of an orchardist and, as most wives do, she rang the packing shed um, during the picking season. Their orchard is much bigger and not as badly damaged. So Annie helps her husband and there's a friend of her husband's, Mark, who's come down from the mainland, as we Tasmanians call the rest of Australia, it's the mainland. He's escaping his own life in Melbourne and is hoping that his young family will find some peace in the Huon Valley. But sadly, his wife has disappeared and has left their young son, Charlie, in his care. So Annie isn't fond of Mark. She wants him gone. But at this stage, they really need his help to get the orchard back up and running. And in the meantime, a friendship sparks up between Catherine and Mark, mainly because of Charlie. Mm -hmm. You know, Charlie is this young boy He needs a a lot of love and support and nurturing for various reasons and Catherine is there. And so she and Charlie form a relationship and because of that, Mark and her become close. 
But of course, he's a married man. It's the late 1960s. And so that causes a lot of gossip. And so we go, actually, uh, the main bit of the book, part of the book actually is from 67 to 77. So we follow their lives through all the ups and downs and the disasters through to the tree pool scheme, which was totally heartbreaking when the export industry for apples did completely disappear. And so the government came with, up with a scheme for orchardists to bulldoze their trees into the ground. And many of these trees had been in the family for generations. Mm. So it was totally heartbreaking. There is a big secret in the book and there is this stonking great love story <laughs> that weaves its way all the way through. I loved every facet of this book. I loved every character. Uh, well, apart from one, maybe I didn't really like all that much, but, <laughs> but it's hard to talk about that without giving spoilers. Now, the devastating bushfire that you start the novel with was in many ways, I thought, the beginning of the end for the apple industry, wasn't it? Yes, it was the first of many disasters. So at the beginning of the 60s, a family could make a good living from 10 acres of apples. Mm. But the 67 fires kind of it ushered in a new era of all kinds of disasters, both natural and economic. I mean, everything from the um, six-day war with the Suez Canal being um, blockaded, yep. so oil prices went up, apples couldn't get through, hailstorms and a lot of more competition from overseas. Markets opened up from South America, New Zealand, South Africa. So there was a lot more competition and the apple industry really needed to restructure and sort itself out. And sadly, it had a lot of trouble doing that. Mm. So it really was just one thing after another. It's like dominoes just mm. going. Doo, 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 doo. Yeah. Mm. And that final nail in the coffin was when, you know, Britain, who Australia had preferred exporter status basically in regards to their apples. And when they joined the European common market, it just bottomed out the entire industry. It was so incredibly sad. Yeah, there was a joke amongst the orchardists that England would take absolutely anything that they mm. would grow, and that was true. Yeah. And then that all disappeared, and then everyone was kind of battling for the same domestic markets, but yeah. it just wasn't worth picking the apples, yeah. and there was nothing really put in place by the government to help them out until the tree pool scheme, which was a rather drastic measure. Mary Lou, the, the level of detail that you've managed to capture in the narrative was exceptional, made even more so by the fact that there were real people who suffered those trials and tribulations that you document in the book, those who stoically continued to farm their land and to tend to their precious trees, even when the future looked bleak. You obviously did an incredible amount of research to bring this story to the page. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. Well, when this idea came to me, I thought, whoa, I know nothing about growing apples. Yes, I might be Tasmanian. I might have grown up in Tasmania, but it doesn't mean I know anything about growing apples. So I began researching and um, there's this beautiful resource that was put together by the um, National Library in the 2000s all these fabulous oral histories of orchardists throughout Australia and a lot of them in Tasmania. So I listened to a lot of them. There was also a lot of information about the 1967 bushfires. There's a lot of information about the day, and it was the 50th anniversary in 2017, so a lot more information was added to the stuff that was already out there um, and a lot of uh, memorial publications and stuff like that. But what I found particularly difficult was finding information about the long-term effects 
because this does start in 67 and it goes through. So you have the long-term effects of what happens after a massive bushfire like that. And I tracked down one book that was released in 1975 that actually used the 67 bushfires as a case study mm. for what um, governments and associations and charities should and shouldn't do. And it was incredibly detailed. It was fantastic. So that was wonderful. I also spent a lot of time in the Hobart Reading Room at the State Library and it was lovely to go back after the book was published into the Hobart Reading Room and thank the librarians. There's, there's a whole paragraph thanking them and the acknowledgements because they were just astounding. All this very obscure stuff that I wanted from, from the archives and they were able to find it all and bring it to me and nothing was too much bother. And I read them this paragraph <laughs> in the back of the book that thanks them. And they went, oh, how wonderful that something so kind of dry and dusty <laughs> has created something so beautiful. So there was that. But the real, the real icing on the cake was finding Naomi Clarkport, who is a female orchardist. So even in this these days and this day and age, it's hard to find a female orchard, especially in the Huon Valley. And that's exactly what I needed. And there she was. Mm. And she was extremely generous with me from day one. Mm. I had already done a lot of research before I got in contact with her. So I had pages of questions. And right from that first phone call, she, she said she'd answer them. And I was asking her all these questions. And about halfway through, she just laughed. And she said, you're not going to need a third of this information. But because she knew I was serious about this book and about the research, she organised interviews with the old orchardists from the area that I write about and other areas in the Huon Valley who went through all of this. So sitting down with those orchardists who had lived all the events in this book was just a gift and they were amazing. And there are a couple little, of little anecdotes that they told me that were just so good that I had to put them in the book. I know. So, so it's layer and layer and layer and layer of research, which adds to all the details in The Last of the Apple Blossom. So you just talked to me about Naomi, who was, you know, one of the only, well, the only female apple orchardist in the Huon Valley. So was Catherine based on her? No, I already had Catherine and that was really interesting. I knew Catherine was going to be a teacher. Mm. And um, Naomi is actually a teacher, as was her mum, to help support the orchard because they really don't pay for themselves these days not the small ones and I always knew because it's the 60s that Catherine would be a church girl because that's what people did in the 60s and Naomi is so it was interesting that even though I started writing the character and I knew all about her when I met Naomi it was just like tick 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 yeah. And little Angela ends up going to collegiate, which is where Naomi went, which I had no idea. <laughs> you know, so all these things just was like, oh, I've, I was actually on the right track because there are all these similarities. But what I didn't know is that one of the oral histories that I referred to earlier from the National Library was one that really broke my heart. And um, in his oral history, he actually praised his daughter who throughout the 80s, which was another hard time for orchards, she did everything she could to keep the orchard going. Mm. And then when I met Naomi and she started talking about her life in the orchard, I went, oh, I think I've listened to your dad's oral history. He'd since passed on and she'd had no idea that he'd recorded this oral history. 
And I said, are you going to listen to it? And she said, I think I would cry. I think it would just break my heart. And I asked her again recently, have you listened to it yet? And she said, no, it would just make me too sad. But I was glad that I could tell her that it existed and that he clearly was full of admiration and love for her. The way he talked about her was just beautiful. Oh, I absolutely love that. I hope she does listen to it one day. I hope so too. The 60s and 70s, as you've alluded to before, was a time of great change for women in Australia. Women like Catherine enjoyed more freedoms than many of her predecessors, but she was still constrained in many important ways, wasn't she? It's incredible to think that in 1966, the marriage bar was lifted. So before then, women couldn't get married and hold a job. But uh, with Catherine, there's still a thing of if you get pregnant, you have to quit your job. Also, the the stuff about women not being able to get alone without a husband or a father's signature and of course her father was never going to sign anything as far as she was concerned and she didn't have a husband but there are all the other little subtle things as well which still many of them hold true today just how women are viewed and what their place is but of course it was a lot stronger then mm. and supported by society in general but we still have that thing with Mark and Catherine where it's much worse for her to uh, be associated with him because you know she's a good Christian girl and he's a married man and really not an issue for him except that of course he doesn't want her to come to any harm but there's yeah lots of little things and then the larger stuff as well and uh yeah, as I said, some things have changed, some things not so much. And the thing about getting a loan, women have said to me, yeah, I still couldn't get a credit card in the early 80s without my husband's signature, even if I was earning more money than him. <laughs> it's like this, you know, this is in many of our lived histories, you know, in the times that we have lived through that women were still so restricted in what they could and couldn't do. It defies imagination in many respects. And as you say, you know, we've lived through that history, so it wasn't so long ago. And I think a lot of women would nowadays would find that hard to swallow. Oh, absolutely. Can you imagine? No, you can't get a credit card unless your husband says you can. So I was interested to learn about some of the apple varieties grown in Tasmania, many of which I venture to say are unfamiliar to many Australians. Gravensteins, A Lady in the Snow, Cox's Orange Pippins, Cleopatra's, Sturmers. Here in the city, I think our repertoire is limited, Jonathan's, Red or Golden Delicious, Granny Smith's. <laughs> now, I know you're in Tasmania now and you're uncovering different apple varieties because I've seen them on your social media feed. How many of these are still around? In Tasmania, there are still quite a few. So when I was down here in March, which is a really good season to be in Tasmania as far as apples are concerned I was actually able to buy Gravensteins and Sturmers but the one apple that I grew up with and is Catherine's favorite apple as well Lady in the Snow I haven't been able to find any ever you know so a lot of those old heritage varieties have gone however Cox's Orange Pippins is still available here which is fantastic I mean you still get you know all the the normal varieties but you will get more here and there was one apple which is a new apple and I love it when new varieties evolve and this is a truly Tasmanian apple and I'd been hanging out to get one and you just can't get them on the mainland So that was one of the things I really wanted to get when I was down here. And um, it's called a ruby gold and they discover new apples 
just by little genetic mutations, but then it takes years and years and years of regrafting and making sure no one else is growing this apple and making sure that it's going to hold up, you know, as far as taste and cooking and picking and storage, you know. So you think it might be a little gold mine discovering a new variety, but it's actually a lot of work and many, many years of work to, to get it to market. Yeah. But it was a real thrill to be able to buy that apple. <laughs> I get excited, but there you go. For me, it was a thrill to discover that there were so many amazing varieties that I never heard of, sadly. I will just say that there is a man in North America who has been documenting every single variety ever grown in North America. It's up to 12 volumes. Wow. And it, it weighs about, I don't know, 10 kilos or something like that. It's just this whole kind of encyclopedia of apples, and he's still discovering new apples. It's just phenomenal. That is incredible. Mm. Mary Lou, I saw this book described as a love letter to Tasmania's Huon Valley. I absolutely concur with this statement. And though the apple industry is nothing like what it was in Tasmania, the Huon Valley is still home to much of the island's amazing produce, fruit, along with salmon, cheese and wine. And I guess... That to me is a testimony to the great resilience shown by many of the orchardists in being able to pivot and use their land for different agricultural ventures, isn't it? It is. And I think that's part of the spirit as well. I mean, a lot of people have come into the area and and bought small farms and hobby farms and have experimented with growing different kinds of produce. And some of them have had great success. But the older orchardists who had to change and pivot it was a different road for them you know they went through many different kinds of crops and also cattle cattle were very popular cattle prices aren't always all that good either but really the orchardists that survive and thrive now are the big ones you know they brought other people out Um, they've experimented with different growing techniques and that was the thing about researching this book because growing techniques of apples back in the 60s were very, very different to how apples are grown today. Yeah. So you, you see them all as these days in their flat rows and it's just like people in the 60s would go, what the hell is that? The trees were massive back then. Yeah. And Naomi took me to a part of her orchard which is in the old style and some of the trees in that orchard are 160 years old, just yeah. so much history. Yeah, but the Huon Valley is beautiful and I do love what's going on there these days and uh, all the different people and the different things they're trialling. And, of course, it's become famous because the gourmet chef Matthew Evans is down there with his farm and his cooking school and his restaurant and and several high-profile people have moved to the area as well. It's, it's beautiful and the dirt, it's good growing dirt. Absolutely. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Something you touch on in this book, which I personally found quite interesting, was was the alternative farming or agricultural practices introduced by the so-called hippies who moved into the area when or around the time of the tree pulling scheme. Is this something that you specifically wanted to explore and why? I did, which is why I set the book around Signet, mm-hmm. because that's where a lot of these new settlers, as they call themselves, first came to. And, you know, they were attracted by, well, cheap land prices. Everything was so cheap back then. No one could sell anything. But also the sense of freedom and being able to grow their own food and build their own houses. But I did really want to document that shift that was happening at the time. There were so many changes between 67 and 77. Everything was changing. Our currency had just changed. The metric system came in. Um, Daylight saving 
Tasmania was the first to bring that back in after the war because of the drought and because of the hydropower. So time, weight, distance, money, everything was changing. We had man landing on the moon, the Vietnam War, Woodstock, and there was this real shift, and mainly I think because of the Vietnam War and, and Woodstock in, in thinking and people wanting to live a different kind of life, wanting to get back to nature, which Catherine just finds amusing because she's <laughs> lived with nature all her life. <laughs> and then all these people kind of come there going, oh, we're going to live off the land, we're getting back to nature. She's like, huh? Um, but I wanted to bring in that shift of attitude and shift in time. And Signet certainly had that in spades and uh, continues to in many ways with the culture there. And I, I wanted to bring in that new energy and that new way of thinking. And it's certainly, I think, something that's become important to a lot of Tasmanian producers these days, the whole um, organic movement mm -hmm. and um, Stardust in particular with biodynamics and the, and the whole Steiner philosophy. Yeah. Yeah, she was a fascinating character. I loved I loved hearing about her philosophy and her farming practices. I mean, it's the truth about apple farming. Everything wants to attack an apple, and they were the most sprayed crop. And I and all of the sprays were incredibly toxic. I mean, people are alert to that now. So even a, a traditionally conventionally grown apple will not be using the amount of sprays that they used to back then. There are different methods. But it did become important to a lot of people. And um, Catherine is completely befuddled by it all and thinks <laughs> it's nonsense. But when she sees what Stardust and Izzy start to do, she gradually goes, oh, okay, yeah. To I her can... credit too, I think. Yeah. You know, like it would have taken a lot, a, a, a very broad-minded person to then turn around and acknowledge that, well, actually Stardust has a point. Yeah. I yeah. think if it had been her father, it might have been a different story altogether. <laughs> And the thing, you know, the thing about Izzy and Stardust, they're incredibly hardworking. And this is the thing, you know, people would go, oh, doll bludging hippies. But they actually worked really hard. It was tough. They built their own houses on bush blocks. You know, they had no money. No one had any money. The orchardists didn't have any money. The hippies didn't have any money. Oh, no. And I think, no, they weren't doll bludgers. They were really working hard. And it gets very cold down there so the conditions also were pretty tough and I and I did want to highlight that as well and also coming into the 70s you know you have the Gough Whitlam years and all kinds of attitudes started changing through those years too so that was just another aspect of it yes indeed Mary Lou, although this book was your debut fiction novel, you've published two other non-fiction books. Uh, the first is a memoir titled Sex, Drugs and Meditation and the other is a How to Stay Married. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, how did these books help or hinder your path to publication with The Last of the Apple Blossoms, do you think? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think that when my memoir was published by a major publisher, I thought, yay, you know, I, I've, this is the start of my career. I could never have been more wrong. Getting a, a novel published is a completely different country with a completely different language. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, it's a lot harder. There are a lot more people writing fiction than are writing memoir or nonfiction. So it, I pretty much had to start from scratch. I knew that I could write a book. I certainly knew that. I knew that I could write a book that people would want to read. 
I think probably the most important thing was actually going through the publication process and um, I thought I knew what to expect. But my novel came out in, sorry, my memoir came out in 2013 and in the eight years since, pretty much everything has changed, everything. (laughs) It's just amazing how much stuff has changed and the whole publicity side is completely different. Social media has become so big and so important, which, you know, it was around in 2013, but it wasn't as massive as it is now. And I, I remember my publicist, I think it was, saying something about the the mummy, Big W and Target influences. And I went, oh, okay. You know, things like this have evolved. That's right, the the mummy Instagram and Big W and Target Instagram influences. And I, I don't even know if Instagram was around in 2013. I can't remember Facebook was. <laughs> but uh, so a lot has changed. But the basics of, you know, the edits that you receive and how that works. But even so, a lot of that had changed. I didn't get any advanced reader copies with my memoir. I don't know who did. So that wasn't really a thing with my memoir, that whole buzz that you get from the advanced reader copies. So a lot of it was a new landscape. But, yeah, it's very, very different trying to get a novel published. Like I said, this is the fourth novel I've written, the first to get published, and uh, Hasn't been from lack of trying, that's for sure. Yeah, I I hear you, friend. I know exactly <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> so did you always see yourself writing historical fiction? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, this this was a complete and utter shock to me. I never thought historical and I never thought Tasmania. I was writing stuff in a completely different genre and direction, but I'm really glad that this idea came to me. Because what it has done is it's opened my eyes and my heart and my soul to this kind of writing, this kind of book. And I absolutely love it. So I think I was still trying to find my voice and what interested me with the other three novels. And I don't think I could have done this story justice without everything I learnt from those other three novels and also being published previously. I knew that the first novel I wrote was going to be my practice novel, mm-hmm. even though at one stage I thought it was going to be a mega bestseller, as I think all <laughs> first-time writers do, you know, and it's going to be turned into a movie and then you get the cold hard truth. But that was my practice book. I didn't know that I'd have to write another two practice books before I got to a stage where I was ready to write this one. So, yeah, I think... Um, Historical fiction for me, and this is a late historical, I do love learning stuff. I really do. And I really appreciate how good historical fiction authors weave in all their research with a really good story. And I I do. I find that fascinating. Yeah, well, you've joined the ranks because you've done (laughs) this beautifully. Thank you. Thank you. If there was one thing you'd like readers to take away from this book, what would it be? I do really think it's a sense of hope. The Orchardists did have a god-awful time of it, it's true, and it seems like nature and the economy and politics just threw everything at them. But there is a lot of love in this book, a love for um, each other, friendship and your romantic love, love of children, a lot of love for children Mm. and a lot of love for the land as well and being stewards of the land and all that kind of stuff. And 
I was thinking of Izzy and Stardust, um, that whole thing of learning to love people that you thought you never would and have nothing in common. But for me, the main thing is hope. I hesitate to use the word resilience because it's used so much these days, but there certainly is a lot of resilience in this book. Mm. But also that, that there is there is hope that whether it's in relationships or with work or with jobs or with adversity or with enemies, there is a way through. Mm. This too shall pass and this too shall get better. Yeah. Indeed, wise words. Thanks so much, Mary Lou. So are you working on something else at the moment? I am. It's another late historical set in Tasmania. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) And once again, I'm going, I don't know if I have the skill to write this, to be quite honest. I was talking to my publisher about it and just going, I don't know if this book is going to work. I don't know if I'm being too ambitious. It seems really amorphous at the moment. And I said, but I think most writers go through this. And she said, yes, yeah, they do. So I have no idea. I have no idea if it's going to work. But this is also the thing. I The last of the Apple Blossom went through 14 edits and I'm writing a first draft. And I love it when I hear very experienced authors just saying my first draft is always just really crappy, you know, no matter how many books I've written. And I gave a talk to some young aspiring authors the other day and they were going, my, my writing sucks, it's really bad. And I went, good. <laughs> it will be. That first draft will be. It will be really bad. It will suck because it does for everybody. So that's, that's where I'm at at the moment, Claudine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to say you're occupying a place that has been occupied by many others just like you. I hear it all the time on this podcast. Uh, the first draft is just, you know, verbal diarrhoea. It is rubbish, but you can't edit something that's not on the page. So you have, mm. we all have to start somewhere. You know that there are a lot of aspiring writers that listen to this podcast. I wondered if you had any tips that you could offer those listeners. I love the advice of Fiona McIntosh that she gives to her masterclasses. I absolutely adore it, even though it shocked and surprised me at the time because I had spent a lot of money to be in Adelaide to do her masterclass way back when. And I already had a book out there, so I, I thought I was special. <laughs> and I thought all writers were special. I thought anyone who wrote a book or wanted to write a book was special. And so it was the first day of the masterclass and Fiona gets up in front of us and she goes, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares about your book. The world does not need your book. And I was just dumbstruck. I thought, what the hell? What is she talking about? Of course the world needs my book. (laughs) Otherwise, what's the point of writing it? And she said, the less I care, the better I write. And I thought, oh, I don't know if that's true because she's great on research and, you know, she puts all her heart and soul into her books. And it wasn't until that I I was having real trouble writing one of my previous novels that will never see the light of day Um, and I got really badly stuck and I remembered nobody cares. And as soon as I did, this load went off my shoulders. I went, nobody cares. The world doesn't need this book. It really is is of no concern what I write at all. And it freed me up, completely freed me up. And I was able to write this chapter and I was able to keep going. So when I remember that marvellous piece of advice from Fiona, and, and, and at the moment, you know, writing this sucky first draft, it's like, well, nobody cares. The world does not need this book. 
And the liberation that comes from that mm. is just astounding. I didn't understand it at first and now I think Fiona's a genius and I have used that philosophy in a few other areas of my life as well. Mm. And I just remember, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. <laughs> and I get really kind of worked up and stroppy and, you know, I think the world owes me this or people should do that. And then I just remember nobody cares. Yeah. And I think what that does is really kind of um, stop me from being so worked up and, and hemmed in and controlling that it opens me up to other possibilities. Mm. So, you know, people listening to this might think nobody cares, you know, how is that a way to live your life? But for me, it just takes that layer off of me thinking how things should be and opens me up to other possibilities of how things could be. Yes, it is a very sobering piece of advice and I must confess, like you, felt quite shocked by that. You know, when you first hear it, you know, your idol is standing up in front of you, yep. your literary idol, and says, nobody cares, but I have to agree with you. And I think it teaches writers who hear that a level of humility in the sense that, you know, we shouldn't approach our writing with a, a sense of superiority in the sense that, you know, there are thousands of people like us. Mm. out there writing we're all doing the hard slog yeah uh, and some of us are lucky enough to get published and others you know we'll still be on that journey for a while it was interesting because when I was at acting school we were told the exact opposite we were told we were special it was hard to get into this acting school it was hard to make it through every year because people would get cold every year so we were special and the truth is when you get out into the world as an actor you are not special yeah. you know they call them cattle calls for a reason and so I'd rather be told nobody cares than to be told oh you're so special and your writing deserves a place because I've I've been through oh you're so special as an actor and actually no I wasn't mm. <laughs> yeah you go to auditions and you just get rejected 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 so yeah it's brutal okay Mary Lou if readers wanted to connect with you or learn more about you and your books how can they do that all the w's marylouestevens.com.au and that's stevens with a ph instagram Mary Lou writes. I think that's my Twitter handle as well. But if you just put in Mary Lou Stevens, it'll come up. And Facebook, I think, is Mary Lou writes as well. I should know all of these. But hey, I, I'm just so used to putting authors' names in the search thing, and up they come. Up they yeah. come. So hooray! <laughs> I haven't ventured into the land of any other social media. I think I'm at my um, capacity at the moment. But hey, if you're on TikTok, good on you. Or any new thing that comes along. Hooray. Mary Lou, I absolutely loved The Last of the Apple Blossoms and cannot wait to see what you do next. Congratulations once again and thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books. Thank you, Claudine, and thank you for everything that you do for authors. Your podcast is just wonderful and I know that we all really appreciate it, especially in these times when it's so hard to get out and about and meet readers. You are doing us all a great service and we're really grateful. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.